it's live. Normally the program broadcasts Monday through Friday, 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern Standard Time, live on YouTube and on the flagship station Rumble, along with other live streams and podcasted at various platforms. My guest is E. Michael Jones. E. Michael Jones is the author of a number of books, The, the Culture Wars, wonderful books that have influenced me greatly, although we have a major difference in one area that we're going to get into for sure. Um, Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, I've been listening to your interviews recently, and I want to ask you right off the bat, you've been talking about what you're calling the Holocaust narrative. Could you please talk a little bit, if you will, about that? What you mean, Holocaust narrative? Yeah, uh, I, I can begin with a, a, an example of recent history. Okay, we had a trucker convoy in Canada. Truckers show up, they're sick of COVID. Uh, they pull into Ottawa and uh, the premier has to deal with the issue. So he immediately deals with it by engaging in identity theft. And the vehicle for the identity theft is the Holocaust or the Holocaust narrative, I would say. So mm -hmm. he, pu he pulls out the guns and he says, these people are Nazis. Uh, someone was carrying a Nazi flag. He's going to demonize the entire group, uh, calls them Nazis, uh, and then calls them white supremacists. And this is the way of basically derailing the narrative or taking control of the narrative by using something which we're going to call the Holocaust narrative. Okay, invoking the Holocaust as a way of derailing a discussion. At this point, uh, there was some debate in uh, Parliament and a Jewish MP from New Brunswick by the name of Sachs, she stands up and she says, I'm Jewish. I had relatives who died in the Holocaust. This is terrible what these people are doing uh, because, and then she says it's gone viral now, uh, because honk honk means Heil Hitler. Well, this is this again. Here we are. We're referring to a narrative in this instance that has nothing whatsoever to do with Canada. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is a category of the mind that has been imposed on a situation for political purposes in order to bring about a certain outcome. The certain outcome being we're going to shut these people down. We're not going to talk to them. We're going to impose this other narrative. And once that narrative is in place, then uh, we have the high ground and that's the end of the discussion. So that's what I mean by the Holocaust narrative. Now, that's a recent example of it. And mm. so like other people, uh, it's, it's not unusual now. Uh, there are people who are looking at this from a basically historical and literary perspective. So I, I cite a number of these books. There are people, you know, it's it's been going on for decades now. And so basically we're going to examine uh, where it come from, where it came from, when it started, who did it, and what was the purpose. That's basically what we're talking about. Okay. I mean, look, there's one aspect of this that I, I would agree with you on. But first of all, let me point out that um, – you know, Nazism had nothing to do whatsoever with the Canadian truckers. That was about freedom. It was about ending these insane mandates. And that there were more Nazi swastikas seen at the anti-Trump pussyhat rallies than there were at this truckers event. They probably sent some guy out, who knows, maybe he was paid by the state to, to wave a quick swastika. Nobody actually even saw it. So this whole charge was ridiculous. And as far as the Canadian... A uh, member of parliament who said honk honk. There was another member of the Canadian parliament, her name escapes me, who said, and who is also Jewish, who said, no, this is absurd and this is an insult that Prime Minister Trudeau would make this equation. So you have people on, on various sides, but you make the point well, Michael, with regard to the use, or I would say the misuse of anti Semitism by the left, internationalist left establishment, the, the ruling oligarchs, if you will, to try to uh, shut down debate. Uh, they do the same thing with the charge of racism, homophobia, 
Uh, if you if you refer to somebody by the wrong surname, I mean, there's a whole basket of things that they use to shut down anybody who disagrees with their particular agenda. And I would think it's actually, you know, they add anti-Semitism on almost as an afterthought because a lot of these same people aren't exactly predisposed favorably toward Judaism or certainly to the state of Israel. So I don't think that, um, you know, the, the issue really is the use of these and the cheapening of these terms, because there is such thing as anti-Semitism and racism in the world. It's just that when you use them and you politicize them and you weaponize them, you know, to promote a particular agenda, you cheapen the concept and you shut down dissent. Right. I think that's the whole point of it. The whole point of it is to shut down discussion. As soon as you play that card, the discussion's over. You just have to, the other side has to run up the white flag and everything's over. And that's the end of the discussion. That's, that's right. why, that's exactly why it's used. It's that's used right. because Justin Trudeau was afraid to have an honest discussion with the truckers. Uh, and right. the, the, the net result, the one thing I would disagree with what you said is saying that somehow this is the left doing this. I think it's the oligarchs. I mean, the no, same I agree time. With that. The same time that uh, Justin Trudeau is calling Canadians Nazis, uh, a video of Klaus Schwab uh, shows up. And here he is announcing that uh, World Economic Forum appoints these young leaders of tomorrow. And Justin Trudeau is one of them. So we immediately found out who Justin Trudeau is working with. The whole thing kind of blew up in his face. And I think they had to make a hasty exit. Thank God that Russia invaded the Ukraine at this moment, because otherwise it would have been a, a colossal embarrassment for, for Justin Trudeau. No, look, I agree with that. I think that, you know, the World Economic Forum, I would argue that these people are, by using a very broad definition, they're leftists only in that they're collectivists and they want world order and they're authoritarians and they're globalists and they, they view kind of it's actually more of a fascistic view in that they verge kind of a merge between, you know, public and private and a privatization of, of government um, while leaving in place the trappings of, of sovereignty. Um, and that, yeah, you know, look, the uh, nobody bought and nobody believed Trudeau when he said that these people were Nazis and white supremacists. In fact, the uh, he almost triggered, it almost triggered a, a worldwide workers movement. I mean, you saw people hitting the streets in, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, Paris, Vienna, I think even in Israel, quite frankly. And they were all out there to end these mandates. And that the it, and this is why here in the United States and right here in my own hometown of Boston, they're ending the mandates because they can see that they're being exposed and they can see right. that this is not popular. And right. so, so the truckers, I mean, God bless the truckers, you know, they really triggered what was there, but they stood up and they went out and, and they did it and they did it at great personal risk. But right. I want to get into with you, uh, Michael, the, you know, to, to bear down a little bit on the Holocaust narrative that you talk about. Um, do you, what is your opinion on the Nazi Holocaust itself? Uh, yeah, th there was something that happened during World War II. Uh, Jews suffered. A lot of people suffered. Uh, I, if you're asking me, did were Jews the only people who suffered during World War II? The answer is no. Did they suffer? Yes. Okay, but were the only people? No. So uh, is yeah. uh, this what I'm trying to do is explicate uh, the Holocaust? Okay, uh, because it came into existence after the war, and that's a whole period where. Nobody, nobody talks about what happened after the war. Uh, I've been trying to resurrect this, this story for, for months now because I think it's, it's extremely important because this is when this narrative came into existence and it came into existence under certain circumstances with certain purposes in mind. I think it came into existence because the Nazis were defeated and we learned about it. In fact, I think it was covered up mostly by the world elites, including, frankly, the Roosevelt administration. Throughout the war, Roosevelt wouldn't even mention the word Jew until the end of the war. I mean, it was, you know, so, yeah, after the war, it, it was revealed that there had been a systematic, coordinated attempt to annihilate the Jewish people in, in Europe. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's something that I would argue 
has been well documented by mountains of evidence. Um, you know, I just think that, that that this is something that's it's it, to try to deny that would be like denying that there was a civil war or that there was a, a revolutionary war. I mean, these are facts of history. Well, when you say fact, uh, you, you know, I, I, I constantly come back to this distinction because there are categories of the mind and there are categories of reality. And one of the main purposes of propaganda is to impose categories of the mind on uh, and say that they are categories of reality. And, and photography is part of the way you do this. So if we get down to specifics, uh, we have the, uh, the, uh, the General Eisenhower, the generals, the allied forces arriving at these camps toward the, at the end of uh, April, 1945. Uh, they go into Ordruf. Nobody knows about Ordruf anymore, but uh, you go in there and uh, they find there are buildings and there are bodies lying on the ground, okay? And Eisenhower is appalled uh, by this. So he brings uh, other general, brings Bradley and uh, Patton in. Uh, uh, they go into a building. There are dead bodies in the building. Uh, and it, it's a horrible scene. Okay. Yeah. Now, what, what they didn't tell us is how those bodies died. How did they die? Do we know they that? They probably died from typhus. I don't know. I mean, that's a common disease when you're, you're in a concentration camp and you're malnourished. And there's disease that goes through the place. Right. I, th I, think that, I think that you're probably right. So, so there was rampant disease. These, ca these camps were over, overburdened with uh, people at the same time that the Allies are uh, bombing Germany, uh, destroying the supply lines, and also disrupting things like the water supply, uh, which is essential for keeping people uh, clean and protecting them from typhus epidemics of the sort that right. were sweep, sweeping through these camps. So the, the next thing that happens is that they go to Buchenwald. Okay, but now if you go back to Ordruf, there are two figure, significant figures there. One is General McClure, who was in charge of the propaganda operation, psychological warfare, and uh, C.D. Jackson, who is his assistant. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this time they send an advanced group in. There are two people whose names I forgot. I mentioned them in one of the articles. And they, uh, they go in and they create uh, basically a display based on what they claim they found there. The display is set up on a table. Uh, basically, Patton orders the civilians, the people of Weimar, to 1,000 people have to march out of Weimar. It's about six miles away. Uh, and they have to stand there and look at this exhibit. The exhibit is basically, there are, is a lampshade, which is supposedly made out of human skin. There are two shrunken heads, and there's an ashtray that's made from a human pelvis. Okay. Now, C.D. Jackson is taken now front and center. C.D. Jackson is a very important person in this regard because he goes on to have a crucial role uh, in the CIA. At the same time, he's working for Time Life. He's on the board, simultaneously on the board of Time Life, and he's working for the CIA which indicates that Time Life is like the propaganda ministry of the CIA during the anti-communist crusade, okay? He also ends up to be an advisor on President Eisenhower's campaign, his presidential campaign. So he's a crucial figure. He's there and he holds up this pelvis ashtray. Well, what was that? Now, I think this is, now we, we know this, there's, there's a film out there. Billy Wilder was called in to make the film. Billy Wilder is a Jewish director in Hollywood. He flies over, he makes the film. Uh, I think this was a tactical error on the part of the, prop, uh, the psychological warfare operation. They overplayed their hand here. Okay, they, could, they, should have huh. stayed, they should have stayed with what they had at Ordruf, which was basically those dead bodies. The dead bodies are very convincing. But hmm. when you start holding up pelvis ashtrays, Okay, and then the shrunken heads. Are, are you telling me Germans shrink heads? They were obviously uh, souvenirs from the Amazon, uh, but they got entered as evidence in the Nuremberg uh, War Crimes Tribunal.
So they overplayed their hand. What do I mean by overplayed their hand? They showed how they were going to use this as a propaganda stunt. That, that's, this is the beginning of the Holocaust narrative. These two, this is one film. The other film was the one done by Hitchcock, and that was based on Bergen-Belsen. Okay, so you have two films here. Now, the problem is, so Billy Wilder was there. Okay, Billy Wilder was doing the film. Hitchcock had a problem, okay? The English are trying to contact Hitchcock. Hitchcock is in um, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he's a little bit sensitive because he feels that, uh, you know, other people, uh, why are you in Hollywood? Why'd you spend the war in Hollywood? Why weren't you up at the front? So he immediately volunteers. He's contacted by some guy who ran the film club in London during the 1920s. They knew each other. Uh, this was a Jew. He was also working for he was working for MI5 at this point, working for their propaganda ministry. So Hitchcock, okay, uh, yes, I'll do it, but I don't fly. So he's got to get on a train. He's got to go from Hollywood to New York City. Then he's got on a boat. And by the time he gets to Bergen-Belsen, it's July. Well, you can't right. keep you can't keep. So when they come into Bergen-Belsen, there are all these dead bodies around. There are trenches and so on and so forth. You can't keep these bodies, uh, you know, around that time. It's it's a health hazard among other things. So what are we going to do? Well, that's the story that I told. There was basically those Dachau. Now you bring Dachau into the story, okay? Now, Dachau never had ex- an extermination camp. There was never any extermination camp. No, it was, a, camp. It was, it was more of a, uh, a POW-type holding camp for, for enemies of the Third Reich. But And look, Michael, I'm, I'm not suggesting that, they, that maybe this wasn't happening. I mean, they might have set up a, a propaganda event. But that, that doesn't take away the fact that there is huge evidence that this happened in Auschwitz and in Poland and in Treblinka and at all of the death camps in Poland that were run by the Nazis. And it doesn't what, take what away do the mean? fact that the Germans themselves, who were very meticulous and very brilliant record keepers and who categorized and documented it, uh, did not engage in a systematic attempt to murder the entire population of the Jewish people in Europe. And, you know, you say that, well, people died of typhus, for example. We know of a very famous example of that, Anne Frank. She died of typhus while she was being taken to the concentration camp. The question that's relevant, and I mean, she's just one example that we could use, is why were they taking a teenage girl to a concentration camp? Why were they hunting her and her family down in occupied Holland so that they could capture them and put them in this camp? There's only one reason, and that is because she was a Jew. She didn't commit any crimes. She wasn't involved in subversion. She wasn't even part of any political movement. She just happened to be a Jew, and she was hunted down, and she died for that reason. That's why she is counted as among the six million Jews who died. They, the thing that makes the Holocaust unique, and I'm not suggesting that there wasn't huge suffering in World War II. I mean, there were twice as many as six million people who died. I mean, in Russia, for sure. I mean, there was something like a, probably a half a million American soldiers died. The thing that makes the Holocaust against the Jews unique and unique in history and why it's important to remember, not as a Jew, but for all of us, is that it systematically targeted a specific ethnic group of people for annihilation because of who they were. It was not because they did anything. And that's what, it it was more than just Germany. It was the entire world. It was the elites of the world who, who basically put them in a prison in Europe. They wouldn't let them go to other countries. We could look at the record, not just of the United States, but of the British Commonwealth and of Canada and of South America, where they shut the door to Jews who simply wanted to save their lives by getting out of Europe. These were Jews who are, who are successful people. I mean, the Jewish people generally are, are, are educated, middle-class people. They weren't asking for anything. They could have brought enormous amount of talent to countries like Brazil and Argentina and Cuba if they had let them in, Canada. These countries would have been better off today had they let them in. But instead, they slammed the door on them. 
And that, you know, th that is part of it. It was an international agenda. This was a social engineering experiment on a worldwide scale, which is why it's important for the world to understand it today. So it doesn't happen again to any group, not just Jews, but this could be done to any group that's targeted by this international cabal. Okay, if you're saying that uh, the Jews were apprehended because they were Jews, that's true. They were yeah. apprehended because they were Jews, because the Jews were considered a subversive group in Germany at that time. Why were they considered subversive? Well, because of the experience that Germans had after World War One with uh, Jewish Bolsheviks who had come when Germany was weak and taken over cities like Munich and Berlin. Uh, they established the Soviet Republic of uh, the Soviet Republic of Bavaria during this period of time. So when Pius uh, Eugenio Pacelli uh, was the nuncio to Germany at this point for the Vatican, and he showed up at the Wittelsbach Palace in Munich uh, during right after 1919-1920, he sent a report back in which he said uh, there are no Germans there; it's all Russian Jews. They basically taken over the city. Now, the word spread to the countryside and they basically came back. The uh, the militias formed and they came back and they took Germany. They took uh, Munich back from the Jewish Bolsheviks. So everybody knew this. Everybody knew that Bolshevism right. was Jewish. This uh, this created a reaction in Germany, which Hitler capitalized on. He capitalized on. Well, well, he, well, could not, he could not have he could not have come to power. Uh, simply by saying it was Jews alone. It was Jewish Bolshevism. They had the bad experience. And now we're back in the battle. The Germans are back in a battle again with the Soviet Union, and they don't want to let the same thing happen. Now, the pattern that was in Hitler's mind, and he said this, was uh, the Armenians in World War I. He, he referred to them specifically in one of the mm -hmm. speeches. Yeah, who, re who remembers the Armenians, he said, in one of the speeches? Sure. Well, what, mm -hmm. what, was, what was that about? Well, the Armenians were um, uh, basically an ethnic group living in Turkey at this time. War, uh, Russia is at war with Turkey. Russia begins an invasion of Turkey at the same time that there's a crucial battle going on where the British are trying to force their way up the Dardanelles. And the Turks, uh, the Armenians welcome the Russians with open arms. So what happens is they say, we can't tolerate this. We're going to take the Armenians. We're going to remove them from the Eastern Front. And we're going to send them to the desert in Syria. Now, that the Turkish line is basically, we just put them on a long march. And there were uh, they died along the way because we didn't. they didn't provide for their well-being. They were attacked and so on and so forth. The Armenians, on the other hand, say it was genocide. Now... Right. Mm -hmm. I think that this is this is the analogy we need to use to understand what's going on in Germany at the time. This the the Jews had this reputation for being sympathetic to Bolshevism. Hitler is now being attacked on the Eastern Front, uh, just in the same way that Turkey was, and he's going to remove them from any type of sensitive area. They were apprehended as Jews. To say that they were sent to these camps for an annihilation is a leap from a category of the mind to a category of reality. That's not, that's not, the, there's, that's not what happened there. If you go to Bergen-Belsen- I, I reject that. I mean, but we're talking, right, that right, is right, what no, happened. Now, wait a minute, let's go, all right, let's take a step back then. Was, okay. were, were there extermination facilities? Were there gas chambers at Dachau? Yes or no? No, there weren't, but there were at Auschwitz. I mean, Dachau, as we started, was okay, not what about, part what of this about, system. What about Bergen-Belsen? Also in Germany, the, the the concentration camps, the death camps were in your were in occupied Poland mostly. They okay, were not so, in Germany. Now, now you have both at Dachau and at Bergen-Belsen corpses, huge amounts of dead bodies. People died from typhus. Okay. Look, I mean, okay Michael, so we, we let's agree. go back to let's we go back to the Bolshevik wait, issue. Wait a minute, we just agreed on something. That's that's a, an achievement here. Okay. All right. Now, what do you want to talk about? You want to first talk of about all, most Jews, Bolshevism? Yeah. Well, first of all, most Jews were not Bolsheviks. There were a large, unfortunately, a pretty good percentage of Jews were attracted to it. I don't think we can deny that. But they were not 
loyal to Judaism. I mean, these are people who became heretics. They dropped out of Judaism. Most of them disavowed their Jewish backgrounds and they embraced socialism. I mean, they became, it became like another religion. And there were certainly plenty of Christians who also embraced Bolshevism. You know, to try to say that this was a reason to annihilate the Jewish people. I mean, I, I, now, I, wait I would also, now wait a minute. Now wait, now wait you a also minute. mentioned I the Armenian. I, I don't think I most Armenians I, were Bolshevik either. I didn't say this was a reason to annihilate the Jewish people. I didn't say that, did I? I never said that. Well, then I said, why, I said why this, this was, I'm trying to explain to you why the Jews were apprehended. And you can't understand that unless you go back to the experience Germany had with Bolshevism right after World War I when they were weakened and couldn't defend themselves. That made a big impression on the German people. And it made a big, even bigger impression on Hitler, who was in Munich at the time of the, uh, the Soviet Republic of Bavaria. I'm just trying to explain. I understand, I understand that. But I think that you're approaching this very in a very narrow prism here. It was not just because Jews were being accused of being Bolshevik, putting aside the fact that the vast majority of them were not. It was also a racial thing and it was a religious thing. And this is where I want to present to you a, a, a thought that I have based upon comments I've heard you make and, and my thinking. You've talked often about how the, the, how God, the Lord God, King of the universe can take evil and turn it into good. And if there's an evil event, out of that comes good. And I've heard you use as an example, the story of Joseph, right? His brothers threw him in a snake pit, which was evil. They left him in there for dead. And then after a series of events, he ends up basically becoming the prime minister of Egypt at a time when there was famine. And he used his good Jewish common sense to develop a means by which they could preserve grain for the future so that the country wouldn't starve to death. And then the brothers come down from Canaan and they, they're starving and, and they realize it's Joseph and they, they throw themselves on the ground expecting to be executed. And Joseph said, look, you know, out of the evil that you did came good. I'm able to now rescue you and my family and you can now come down and survive. I would suggest that the Nazi Holocaust was, was, was probably, in my opinion, the most evil event in, in world history, just because of the systematic aspect of it, this idea that they were going to annihilate an entire group of people. But out of that came good. And there are two examples I'll give. The first is one that's obvious to me. You probably won't agree with it, but that was the establishment of the state of Israel, which I view as a miracle. But the more interesting one for your purpose as a Catholic is that I think that it caused the Christian world, particularly the Catholic world, to experience a, a sense of guilt for their involvement in the Holocaust or their connivance or their, in a way, their, their acceptance of it or their, their, their lack of standing against it. And, and that led to Christianity rejecting this idea that the Jews were collectively responsible for killing Christ. And I think that the Roman Catholic Church has moved away from that. They did it during Vatican II. They did it when Pope John Paul II went to a synagogue for the first time in history in Rome, and he said so fairly explicitly. And I think that Catholics in particular, but Christians generally, have, have rejected that doctrine. And to me, that's a miracle. And that is something good that came out of evil. OK, first of all, the the Catholic Church cannot reject the thesis that the Jews killed Christ. It's part, it's part of the scripture. Uh, if you're referring to Vatican II, the document does not say that. It says not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his death. That means some Jews were responsible for his death. And it wasn't just some Jews. It was the Jewish people. And I've constantly tried to make a distinction here between Jews and the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a politically mobilized body for political purposes. 
Okay, the Sanhedrin back then, the ADL now, other organizations like that, IPAC, all these things. That is the Jewish people now. It's not every Jew, obviously. Okay, so first of all, that, that it didn't change. The Jews did kill Christ. St. Peter went to Jerusalem, uh, Acts of the Apostles. The church can never repudiate the Acts of the Apostles. It's a scripture. He said to the Jews, uh, you killed Christ. And the Jews were cut to the heart, it says that there. And then they said, what must we do to be saved? And then he said, you have to be baptized. That will never change, okay? If someone is giving you the idea that it has changed, they're telling you lies. That's not going to happen, okay? I don't now, think that's accepted generally in the Christian world today. No, it think, is. And, I and look, I, I, wait a minute. I am yeah. saying, I just cited scripture. If the Christian world does not accept scripture, then it's not in communion with the Christian faith. It's that simple. I don't care how many people have been brainwashed by reading Time magazine or whatever. That's going to that's not going to change. It's your interpretation and, and, of scripture. Pardon me? It's What's your that? interpretation of the scripture. Well, I don't think that that was universally accepted by Christianity. I mean, it was certainly a mainstream view of Christianity, probably right up to maybe the period of World War II, but I don't think that it was universally accepted. Okay, and I don't this, think that it's, uh, you know, it, it was not the Jewish people. It was maybe, you're right, the leadership probably wanted to, you know, encourage the Romans to to execute Jesus. No, no it was and, the Jewish people. It was the Jewish people. The leaders, so. the, it was the leaders of the people and the people all said, crucify him. It was the Jewish people I, look, that killed uh, Christ. Mike, I don't think that the Jewish people even were paying any attention to, to Christ at that time. <laughs> Charles, Charles. They were, they were being oppressed fly, by the Romans. This, this was the most important event in Jewish history, and the Jews made Not the so. wrong decision, and they have been trying to justify their wrong just, decision it doesn't need to be for 2,000 years. Of course look, it needs to be justified. Michael, look, the, the Jews, it, to the degree that the Jews might have recommended that Jesus be executed to the Romans, it was because they viewed Jews Jesus. And by the way, this has changed. At the time, they viewed Jesus as a threat to the the logos, if you will, of, of Judea. They thought that he might bring the Romans in to, to really crack down. This was not an easy time. And in a way, he was viewed as a heretic in the same way that the Roman Catholic Church viewed Jan Hus as a heretic and executed him. They burned him at the stake along with 250 other of his followers in Bohemia. He was viewed as so. A the Jew, so you're no. saying the Jews did want Christ killed. You're saying that they did they, want. I kill think him. that I think a percentage of them did. The leadership did. The leaders they, did, and the followers. Yeah, but the point the is that they didn't want. Look, they didn't it, to the degree that they wanted the Romans to do this, and the Romans were the ones who did it. Uh, Pontius Pilate, according to both uh, you know, historians at that time, Josephus in particular, also uh, Philus of Alexandria. They've written that he was known to be an extremely brutal uh, governor, even to the degree that the, he was too much for the Romans. They recalled him after he massacred Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. So, you know, the Romans were, were doing these kinds of executions left and right, and they were the only people in Judea that were authorized to engage in these kinds of executions. Yes, yeah, so and, and, and the Jews begged them to kill Christ. It's obvious. Listen, let's forget about this. We, okay. We're going around in circles. Let's, let's forget back. about let's it. Go, I'll just say one go, thing. Wait a minute. Let's go but back before to, we do, I want to say no, wait, one wait, thing about wait. it. No, wait, 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 okay. wait. I want to say something. Sure. We, we ignored the big part of what you said, which was basically the good came out of evil. And the good that came out of evil was, first of all, the state of Israel. And secondly, the Catholic yes. Church changing its views. OK, secondly, yes. the Catholic Church has not changed its views. So that's wrong. But then if you go to the, your other claim, uh, that's the Holocaust narrative. That's what I'm talking about. The one thing that enabled the Jews to sweep into uh, Palestine and to engage in the same behavior that the Nazis were engaged in with their eyes open. Uh, when I'm, and I'm referring to the massive ethnic cleansing and massacres of innocent, innocent Palestinians at villages like, like Deir Yassin. Don't tell me you reject it. It's a fact. 
Type in, type in Deir Yasin and you'll find you type it. In, you can type, the, in, type in the Gutshetzi on where Jews were massacred. This was a war. But look, I mean, I just want to finish up. So I'm, so, I'm say, so I'm saying that the Holocaust narrative is what enabled that. And it wasn't good. No, and I'm saying that. in order in order to understand history after World War II, we have to understand the Holocaust narrative. So from from Deir Yassin all the way up to the Canadian trucker strike, you've got the same narrative being employed for political purposes. Look, Mike, I mean, just to get I, I, I want to address that issue if we want to talk about Israel. But I just want to say that the the Jewish leadership in Judea, you know, they obviously, if they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they would not have been calling for his execution. The fact is that they didn't believe it. Now, maybe they were wrong, but they weren't saying, oh, we're going to go execute God. You know, they did not accept his ministry. They felt that it I was agree. dangerous. You're absolutely right. So they fine. Did. I think we they can agree on that. Him. Okay, simply because they didn't accept him? Is that a reason to kill him? No, Why they didn't they want to kill him. Why did no, they want to kill him? Because if you don't accept his ministry and his claims, then he becomes a dangerous subversive to their society. And this was at a time when the Romans were executing people left and right. This was not a free Israel at that point was not free. It was completely occupied by the most brutal so, authoritarian so me, power the world had ever known. Let me get the Roman this Empire. Let me get this straight then. Anytime the Jew feels threatened, he has a right to kill you. Is that right? No, that is not right. The fact is that it's, a, and as I said, it's the same thing as the Catholics executing Jan Hus. He was a threat to the Catholic Logos at the time. They felt that by letting him and his ministry continue, it would have eroded the, the core of the Catholic um, edifice in Europe and, and probably actually did. But the, well, that, that is, though, the Holocaust narrative. I mean, I could give you a recent example. There was a, uh, I think it was a Netflix series called Hunters, okay, which is basically they suspect that this guy is a Nazi, and so they have a right to kill him. Or a better example is the, uh, the Spielberg film, uh, Munich. Remember that film? Okay, yes. you've got you've got the the uh, Israelis decide that they are going to be judge, jury, and executioner for Palestinians that they suspect of complicity with the uh, uh, Munich massacres. So there's a scene there where the 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 gunman, the Israeli gunman, show up. There's an Italian guy standing on the street. They're holding a picture next to him, and he's are you are you, he's shaking and and they're shaking and they kill him. Well, this is criminal behavior. It's criminal behavior, which has been enabled by the Holocaust narrative. That's the whole point. All right. Look, my, uh, Michael, I didn't actually see that movie, but my understanding of that history was that uh, the Israeli athletes were seized because they were Jews, because they were Israelis, by the Palestinian uh, right. That's liberation. True. And absolutely they were right. murdered. All right. So I think that what happened at that point was that Golda Meir, who was the prime minister of Israel, and they, they, I think they did cover this in the movie, and I think it's historic. She said that, look, we can't let this stand. I mean, these we can't. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, lose our. our it'll, our, it'll be the Holocaust again. That's right. right. And Israel's facing that's that. Kind of that's genocidal my point. Threat. The that's point my is, point. That, well, that's, that's and my it's point. A point well taken. Israel is facing a genocidal threat. The point is that her, her response was that in order for us to maintain the freedom of our people and their right to live in, in peace and, and determine their own destiny as a sovereign people, we're going to very carefully and over time find the perpetrators of this massacre and we're going to stop them. That was a, her position on it. And they did. It took about 20 years, but they did it. And they did it because they were defending the lives of their people, like you, any you, sovereign nation would do. That's, that's not Spielberg's film. Spielberg. First of no, all, how, did, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that that guy you just gunned down was really the guy? Isn't this Look, what you have to? Obviously, they made Wait, 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 wait. Isn't this why we have uh, the rule of law? So that that man has a chance to defend himself before he's shot on the street. Well, look, well, Mike, who gave, obviously, who gave who gave these people the right to do that? The answer is the Holocaust narrative. The answer that is that they, the answer exactly. is that they the answer is that they made a mistake. Is the answer? I mean, they probably thought they had reason to think that he was one of these terrorists who had killed their people, and they were wrong. That is, you know, look, 
when oh, you sorry, have sorry. That's right. If this, you is have not, this is not civilized behavior. No group on earth has the right to engage in these summary executions like this. And the only reason the they Jews get right away... They didn't the get away with it. If they were wrong, they should have been try, tried the, for, for their crime. I mean... The only, they, the only reason the Jews got away with it is the Holocaust narrative. They are given privilege to no, get, engage in summary execution because of the Holocaust narrative. No, they're not. No, they're not. They were and had nothing to do with the Holocaust. It had to do with Israel defending the, the lives of their athletes and, and basically putting an end to the people who bringing justice by stopping the people who had, uh, you know, killed those athletes for no reason, uh, for, for, for strictly because they were Israelis. And yeah, they probably made a mistake. That happens in uh, war. Sorry. Israel's record it's in that war is very good. It's not a war. There's no I, I would on. argue that it is a war. When you go into what's, the Olympic village, the, the, war the, war? Is, the war is a terrorist group going into the Olympic village, finding Israelis and murdering them. That's a war. And I think that Israel actually has a very good record as they confront a, a Holocaust Look, you're just motivated, you just, you just genocidal they... agenda where you have enemies who wants to kill talk, every Jewish man, woman, and child in that country? They are defending their a, right to live. This is, this, yeah, is not, it this, is. Is, this is not a dialogue, Charles. You're constantly okay. talking over me. I'm you're sorry. Con, you're constantly talking and talking and talking, and I can't <sighs> I can't get a word in edgewise. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I it's get not, a little it, emotional about this issue. Yeah, I understand that. But uh, and, and you're constantly ignoring the evidence that I bring forward. So you can talk about that. The Jews have a right to execute uh, people on the street. They have no idea of whether that's the real person or not, but they have the right to do this. And what gave them the right is the Holocaust narrative that you have the right now to completely discount the 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 ethnic cleansing and massacre that took place at Deir Yassin in 1947. You have the right to do that, maybe 48. You have the right to do that because you are empowered by the Holocaust narrative, and I am not. That's the whole point of my, my whole point here is to look into how that came about. How did this right suddenly to kill people at will and always be in the right, no matter what the situation is? How did that come about? It came about because of the Holocaust narrative. Look, Mike, I understand what you're getting at, and I, I would suggest that you're just flat out wrong. Jews don't have a right to kill anybody. Nobody is claiming that anyone, Jew or non-Jew, has a right to kill an innocent person. This was a situation where they were investigating these crimes and they made a mistake. And if they did make the mistake, then they should be held accountable for that in a court of law, and I hope they are. This isn't, nobody's saying that they have a right. This was obviously a, a, probably a case of mistaken identity. This is like if you have a, a, a police go into a, raid a house in, in, a, in a major city in the United States and they kill someone by mistake. They're not going in there to kill an innocent person. It's, these, are, these are mistakes that are made in the course of investigating. I don't think anybody's apologizing for it. And no one's saying, oh, because of the Holocaust, we can do this. No, I don't think so. Israel. Well, they, yeah, look, you can deny it, but uh, I don't know. How, I'm telling you, it's a mistake. I don't know how they, we're going. How do, do we get think out? That they deliberately went and decided, oh, we're going to kill this Italian guy because we feel like it. No, they thought that he was someone else because of their faulty investigation. I'm saying the very fact that they felt they had to write the right to execute somebody on a street in Rome is a sign of a problem here. Who gave them this right? And I'm telling you who gave them the right. It was the Holocaust narrative that empowered them and put them above the law. And you now think they have the right have to take Eichmann back to Israel for trial? I mean, you know, this is the Israelis will reach out if they if there's someone who's killing Israelis, they will target that person. They're not try, trying to target innocent people. You know, they, we, this is who why. Did, who determines whether the person is innocent or guilty? When you've got gunmen with their hands shaking on a sidewalk in Rome, this is something that should be adjudicated in the Fine, court of law. If I you're not willing to do this uh, legally, you're known as a criminal. 
Look, so we have I, the, I think we are in agreement on this. I think it should be adjudicated if they have made a mistake and they've had a case of mistaken identity. And maybe, yes, they probably should have gone through the Italian authorities or whatnot. I don't know what was going on with that. But sure, mistakes were made, as the saying goes. But their intention was to find those who were killing Jews in Munich and stop them. They weren't going out to try to find innocent people. And as far as the IDF goes, I think their record is, given the fact that they are dealing with an enemy who is trying to annihilate the Israeli people through by building terror tunnels and, and firing missiles from Gaza and firing gas balloons into their fields, they have been very careful about finding the source of the problem, the people who are firing the missiles and stopping them. They're not trying to kill innocent people. And they've actually put Israelis at great risk in that effort. If they wanted to kill innocent people, they could drop a bomb on Gaza tomorrow. They're not trying to do that. They're trying to they drop bombs on Gaza on a regular basis. They drop white phosphorus. <laughs> they drop all kinds of things on us. Wait, wait, but we're, we're, get, we're getting away from the topic here. OK, we are. We're, get, we're, we're getting away from the topic. We're back on the same old, same old that we've always run aground on in past uh, conversations. Right. I agree. So let's get back on topic. OK. What would you like to talk about? Well, so, I mean, want to talk I, about I, I'll, get, I'll get back to my, my thesis here, which is that in the post-war years, when you had Catholic nations and Christian nations decide that they would not allow Jews to immigrate into their country because they were Jews, because of their own perceived idea that these people are Christ killers who will subvert our society, they basically slammed the door on Jews trying to save their lives and get out of Germany. And I think that after the war, there was a re-examination. Now you're telling me that the Catholic Church did not disavow that particular interpretation of, their, of, the, of the New Testament. Okay, fine. But the fact is that the body of Christian people did. They no longer view that because there was a sense of guilt about this. They were responsible. I'm not saying that the only person that was actually responsible was Hitler and the Nazis themselves who were atheistic and who were into this weird new age thing and who, you know, all of that. I, I recognize that. But Christianity did bear a certain level of responsibility because of this idea, this idiotic idea that the Jewish people are collectively guilty for killing God. That is something that I would contend most average Christians have rejected. I think that it is, and I think they've rejected it for good reason, because it's wrong. And because it was not, it led to a terrible, immoral event that we don't want to no, happen again to no, any people. This is, this is all just Jewish fantasy. It's, it's a Jewish category of the mind that has no relationship with reality. You're making it up because it's been made up for you because the Jews control the press and it doesn't correspond to reality. Okay. But, made, nobody made it up for me. I mean, I, and by the way, the Jewish press <laughs> and, and the Jewish establishment is not too crazy about me. Let me tell you that. I understand because you're willing to talk to me and I'm always uh, and because grateful, I'm not a man of the great, left. Grateful for, I understand that. It's good that we have a chance to talk, but we should do, you know, it would be better if we had some meeting in the minds, if we could actually agree on something right. uh, as a basis for something or other. So I'm, I'm going to just talk about, you're talking about all of these countries. Uh, you're talking about America and its attitude toward the Jews. You're, the, the reality is different than that. I mean, Roosevelt was a complete a pawn of uh, his Jewish secretary of the treasury, Mr. Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau. There was a plan. The Jews who left Germany in 1933, during the 1930s, all returned with vengeance in mind. And Morgenthau was just thirsting for vengeance against the German people after the war. And he came up with something called the Morgenthau Plan, which hmm. was to basically starve the German people to death. Now, there were other Israelis who were showing up. They just did a movie. The, the great thing about Jews is they make movies about their own criminal behavior. OK, and so they have Plan A, which is a movie about Jews coming back from Israel, and they're going to poison the water supply in Nuremberg. 
Now, wait a minute. That, that sounds like that canard about poisoning the wells in the Middle uh, Ages, except that they did. There was a plan and it never got carried out because they simply couldn't pull it off. And then the Israelis pulled them back because it was, you know, lots of things. But the, basically the plan here, uh, Morgenthau, uh, the plan is to starve the German people to death. 46, 47 uh, was called, is known as Das Hungerjahr in German history because the uh, United States Army had warehouses full of food and they were not letting the German people have any of that. And at this point, the great hero of the, uh, the German people at this time was Cardinal Frings of Cologne, who stood up to the Allied powers and told these people, uh, you know, basically, uh, if there's a warehouse there and your children are starving, you have a right to break into that warehouse and take the food. Same thing goes with, with coal. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're freezing to death, you have a right to take the coal. OK, they stood up and the American people turned against Morgenthau, largely because of the efforts of Herbert Hoover, the former president, who was mm -hmm. organizing food aid. He was a Quaker and the Quakers were sending food to Germany. OK, and he characterized sure. what Morgenthau was doing as Semitic vengeance. And the okay. entire American people turned away from this and they came up with the the uh, the Marshall Plan, which was different. OK, it was different. It wasn't uh, it, it had its own agenda, but it was different. So I'm saying all of this type of stuff is simply left out. It's left out of the history. Nobody talks about this, even when the Jews make a movie about it, like Plan A. That that movie was so I mean, I, I can imagine what's happening in some some distributor in Hollywood. Like, Moisha, what are you doing? You think this makes Jews look good, that they want to poison the wells in Nuremberg? This is the type of revenge that was going on at the time. It was justified by the Holocaust narrative. They felt that they had a right to poison the entire population of Nuremberg in revenge. That's Jewish. That's what Herbert Hoover said, and the government turned away from it. Well, first of all, I mean, Henry Morgenthau was a, was a fairly, you know, he was a very secular Jew. He was a good friend of FDR. He was a neighbor of FDR in Hyde Park, a lifelong friend. And he really was not interested in talking about Jewish issues or the Holocaust throughout the war. It was his assistant, Assistant Secretary of Treasury, Harry Dexter White, who did have a Jewish background. He was a very ultra-liberal communist a guy who was uh, helping Stalin, according to Whitaker Chambers, who came up with the Morgenthau plan. It was it was really the Dexter White plan. Right. That was presented. I agree. With, I agree with you. Good. We're but, but the point is, we're getting, we agree, we're, we're getting on the same wavelength. Good. Good. Yes, we do. But where I would take issue with you is that Harry Dexter White, who was cooperating with Stalin behind the back of the government and who was a communist by any stretch, he was interested in doing this because he was a communist and he was a Stalinist. He wanted to pasteurize, as he said, Germany after the war, so it would be weakened for Stalin. So it would the communists would take over Europe. It wasn't he wasn't acting as a Jew. He didn't give a damn about the Holocaust. Never said a well, word about it during you, the you war. That, he so was he, doing it because he was, wanted to help, you know, Soviet uh, Union. I'm saying that the, uh, the the motive was identified as Jewish vengeance. Do you think yeah, the but Jew, it wasn't. The it Jews, was a communist agenda. Why is it suddenly that it's, once again, where it's, it's the amazing disappearing Jew. Whenever I identify a Jew and you I've agree that, he was a gay, suddenly he's no longer a Jew. No, I said that he's a Jew, but he was a very secular Jew who was mainly a communist. Bolshevism was a Jewish, Jewish political movement. No, I reject that. I really do. You know, Mike, we talked well, about you reject it doesn't change the fact we've that we talked was. about this. It, you know, Jews were attracted to Bolshevism, but Bolshevism came from, you know, the, the, the you know, you've talked about this secret society in in Russia, the Zovania Volia. No, no, not a Naya Volia. Thank was you. A was a Jewish terrorist organization. And that is what gave birth to Bolshevism. No, I, I looked into Len, Lenin's, I, Lenin's brother was a member of that. He was involved in the assassination of the czar. He was executed and Lenin right. was immediately inducted into Narodnaya Volia because of his brother and because he showed up at the university. 
And, and I've looked into this. It was not a Jewish organization. It was actually an anti-Semitic organization that was founded by Bakunin, Michael Bakunin, who weaved all these Jewish conspiracy theories. No, 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 no. You're, you're thinking of Ch- and whatnot. No, no, you're thinking of Cherney Paradell. That's the other. The basic organization, the revolutionary organization was the Black Path. And their, their idea was to mobilize the peasantry through right. education. So they go to the villages. The first thing that happens is they, they, the peasants go to the police and say some Jew is trying to agitate here. The Jews at this point realized they could not get anywhere by talking to the peasants. And at that point, Narodnaya Volia broke away from the original organization and as a Jewish terrorist organization. That's what it was. There's no way of getting around it. No, the 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 whole thing. I, my reading on this was that they were basically founded by disaffected Russian aristocrats who were inspired by Italian communists like Bruno and others, who, by the way, I think nominally were Catholics, and who eventually let in Jews after you know a period of time, and Jews did join up with it. But it's a it's a bit simplistic to try to claim that this was a Jewish thing. I mean, it Jews was were, a Jewish thing. You're you're trying to say that there is no such thing. No, I'm as saying there were Jews involved. Look, I, you, I, no, I'm not saying that. By the way, I would point out today that the Jewish leadership has been completely rifled through and infiltrated by the left. And you have the ADL, which is very left wing. I mean, they, they talk about issues that have nothing to do with Judaism, nothing to do with the covenant of, between God and the Jewish people, have nothing to do with the Jewish people. It's issues that are tangential, like abortion or whatnot. And, you know, that's that I will acknowledge that's the same way that Theodore Hesburgh turned Notre Dame into a communistic. OK, group. OK, OK. If you want to organize a group called Jews and Christians united against the ADL, sign me up, okay? I will join your organization. Well, you know something? Uh, That's exactly what, frankly, I and a lot of regular Jews are trying to do. We do sign me up. Sign me up. Mike, the point I'm making here is that our leadership, going back, I think, to, I I trace it back to to the false messiah, Shabtes V, but there's other people of other theories they have been co-opted by anti-Jewish, you know, leftist cabals. I would argue that. I think that the evidence of that is, is very prominent. My point is that this has nothing to do with the, with, with the Jewish covenant. They are not, they, these people don't even believe in God, most of them. I mean, they're not observant Jews. They don't, you think I they- never, I never said they were religious Jews. Yeah, but you have that. that same thing in- in Protestantism. Now, the Catholic Church, on the other hand, I think has been more resistant to it because of its hierarchical structure. Is there, is there a category of reality known as the Jew? Yes or no? Yes, of course there is. Okay, of course there is. Okay. Do they act uh, as a group? Actually, not so much, but I, I well, get what, what, what about mean. What about reparations payments from Germany? That was an Israeli thing, yeah. That's right. So, so there is a, a group in Germany. That was, right? It was Israel. There was a state, the sovereign state of Israel okay. came up with an agreement with the with Germany because people could show that their property had been looted and right. They so there, so Germany every year Germany signs a check and it's made out to what the Jews, right? To these families, not to the Jews, to people who well, could no, show it's, that it's they the had Jews. their property stolen. But basically, it's written that there's a group there called the Jews that cashes the check, right? That had their so is, property it is stolen. It is a group. Yes. It is a group. That's okay? right. It's That's all I'm saying. So it acts, it acts on its interests. It acts on its own interest. And it's, it's been, well, it's been given. It's been, I'm saying this group has been empowered by the Holocaust narrative to have power way beyond its numbers. The, well, first of all, the state of Israel negotiated that with Germany, and it was very controversial, by the way, in Israel. A lot of, a lot of Israelis were pretty pissed off about it. There was a riot where they were throwing car, overturning cars over it. Now, how can you deal with Germany? But the fact is that that's, that's a matter of public negotiation, just like the U.S. government came up with a settlement with the Japanese who were in internments. These are political questions. Yeah, they're groups. Sure they're groups. Did. 
Right. Okay. So just to bring it up to date, now we've got another issue here, and it's the Ukraine. That bumped Canada off the issue. Okay. And here, here we have another group of Jews now who are dragging America into a war, beginning with Victoria Newland. Okay. And the whole weaponization of you. I looked into it. I think she had her father was nominally Jewish. He had a communist background in Ukraine. How about how about Zelensky? Is he a Jew? Yes, he is. Okay, good. We finally have a Jew that just just didn't disappear. Okay. No, no, no. They. they what about Blinken? Funny. What about Blinken? Is he a Jew? Married to a Catholic, but yes, he is. Okay, good. Okay, so you got once again. Uh, you've I'll got, show you a Jew, and I'll raise you a Jew. I mean, we we okay. get into this kind of conversation. It's like. Yeah, you know, you can see bad Jews and good Jews, bad Christians and good Christians. Yeah, sure, there were Jews who were advocating that the U.S. get involved in another war, which I, I'm completely against. You also have Jews who are on the forefront of the peace and staying out of the war. There has never been, you say the Jews are this uniform group, we're not. There is huge differences and conflicts within you're, the you're Jewish saying, community. But what you're saying is that there is no group. This is always. No, I'm saying there this is, is a group, but it's very divergent. Well, then it's not a group. Either it is a group or it isn't okay. a group. It's an interesting question. I suppose maybe we're not a group then. Although there are certain common denominators that we do embrace, even if even if you have people who dissent from that. And one of those is that we believe that the Lord our God created the universe and was the giver of the law. You know, we believe that there is a covenant between God and the children of Israel that was codified at Mount Sinai. And we believe, like Jesus said himself, that that covenant is forever. So, yeah, there are certain common denominators. There are certain basics of Judaism that we do embrace. And that out of that covenant comes a moral and ethical code that has guided Jewish life. Now, that doesn't mean that there haven't been bad Jews and heretical Jews, but that's what they are. That is not Judaism, and that's not the Jewish people. They don't represent, you know, any more than, than Theodore Hesburgh represents Catholicism. Okay. You have the, the Jewish people. I'll give you a counter narrative. Okay. We got to bring this to a close anyway. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the Jews killed Christ. Okay. 30 years after that, the temple is destroyed. Mm -hmm. This means, why did they have a temple? They had the temple for a sacrifice to fulfill the covenant. The Jews right. can now no longer fulfill the covenant. They, do, they cannot expiate guilt. At this point, they've got a problem. How do they deal with guilt? They deal with guilt by projecting it on to the victim. That's what they've been doing for 2,000 years. The Polish proverb is, the Jew cries out in pain as he strikes you. This is the fundamental problem that we have behind the Holocaust narrative. There is always some type of guilt that is being projected away onto other people to shut them down and to go get back to the beginning of the story. This is exactly what Mrs. Sachs tried to do to the truckers in Canada. That is the purpose of the Holocaust narrative. That's my point. The Jews do not have to sacrifice at the temple. We've talked about this. I've looked into this further. Well, why'd they do it then? Because they would. Be, I'll tell you why. Thanks for asking. The whole business of sacrificing at the temple was a bow to the pagan world at that time. And this was, this was discussed by the prophet Samuel. When Saul went to Samuel and he said, after defeating the Amalekites, I've brought the cattle to be sacrificed to God. We're going to do the animal sacrifice. And Samuel said, no, we don't need animal sacrifice. God only, you know, you get expiation, you get redemption, you get atonement by treating your fellow people right, not by, God doesn't need this. This is something that we do, but it's way down the list of priorities for the Jewish people. They have had a temple, but they've also had long periods without the temple. That is not what we need to do, and it's never been. And since the destruction of the temple, the, the Talmud and the Sanhedrin developed a system by which we can continue to worship God and continue to find atonement in, in, in other ways that are actually more akin to the genuine covenant, which is to be witnesses to God. 
we don't have to have animal sacrifice. That's that's just not true. You're you're engaged. Look, I understand this is a Christian understanding that actually I think you know I don't know how pre- prevalent it is now, but it's it's just not the case. We're not guilty of anything. It was the world that was guilty of the Holocaust, and that's the guilt that needed to be addressed. We didn't do anything to deserve that. We didn't do anything to deserve any of these things. Not that you know every single Jew is innocent, hardly. But as a people, we have been witnesses to the existence of the creator of the universe. So. Anyway, right. my, that's, my, right. that's my thesis. And, um, you know, I, that's, I hope I presented it. And I, I hope you feel that you presented yours. Good. Always, right. always good to talk to you, Charles. Indeed. All right, E. Michael Jones. By the way, your books are available at The Culture Wars, which you urge people Cult- to go to. Culturewars.com. Culturewars.com. All the books, including the second edition of The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Oy. Um, and you, of course, I understand you've been censored on Amazon, which I, I think is horrible. And so really, you know, if people want to learn about your books, they, they should go there. And a lot of them, are, I mean, I admire your, your work. I just, I mean, I got started with, with, with studying you when I read Degenerate Moderns and, um, you know, and the, uh, your book about the terror genre. And uh, I was fascinated by those. And it, I found it very transformative. It was actually you know, it changed my consciousness in a lot of ways. And I know other people have said that uh, about your work, which is brilliant. Uh, I mean, I just wish, I mean, then of course I, I got out of talk radio. I had a family, I got business and then I got back into it. And I said, oh, I'm going to look up E. Michael Jones. And I discovered that you were into some of this Jewish stuff. I have to say, I was disappointed with that. And I think that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of a marring of what is otherwise a brilliant a body of work. I'm sorry to say that, but you know that that's how I see it. But you know, whatever. I hope that we can continue to talk and and maybe explore these issues, both of us. So um, I want to thank you for joining me, uh, E. Michael Jones. You're welcome. All right. Have a great evening.